Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Fly Past podcast from Key Aero. My name's Chris Freer. Twenty years ago I was making a radio series about Lincolnshire people for broadcast around the world with my mother Liz Butterfield. The landlady of our village pub suggested we interview her father who had been a navigator in Bomber Command during the war. Initially posted to 102 Squadron at RAF Pocklington, here then is Ronald Tudbury's story. What actually made you join the Royal Air Force when you knew there was a war coming? Because uh, as a young man of 20, maybe under 20, I just felt I was out of the war and my conscience said I should volunteer for the Royal Air Force in spite of the fact that I was in a reserved occupation, I was an engineer and the only way you could get into the forces was to join flying duties in the Royal Air Force, no other way. So that's why I joined. No, but you didn't actually go straight into Lancaster bombs because they weren't available, were they? That's correct. I was posted to RAF station Pocklington, which is four group, Bomber Command. They fly Halifaxes, which is a four-engine bomber, and that's what we did. I did six trips at Pocklington, and then I was shot down on my last trip. This was to Crayfeld in the Ruhr, for the benefit of everyone, this is in Germany. And we were shot down near Amsterdam. This meant that we lost two engines immediately. These were on fire. And we managed to get the fires out by pressing the fire extinguishers. And it was quite a surprise, the fires going out. And then after we'd flown for a little while, a third engine failed. That didn't catch fire, but it failed. So we had to feather the engine. This isn't sufficient to maintain height in the Halifax, so we made a slow descent. I should point out, by the way, that we were able to open the bomb doors and release all the bombs around the Shell Testery to lighten the load. We had made a decision not to bail out because we were over an island area. We decided to come down into the North Sea as far away from Holland as we possibly could. And this we achieved, but we were only 11 miles from the island of Overflaky which is rather funny because this is spelled O-V-E-R-F-L-A-K-E-E. This was at 2 o'clock in the morning on the 21st of June, 1943. We came down in the sea. We made a perfect landing, by the way, a ditching, it's called. We got out almost dry and stepped into the dinghy. And there we were, sitting in a dinghy in the middle of the North Sea. The aeroplane floated for an hour before it finally sank and we had to wait for dawn Unfortunately for us one of our typhoons flew over and reported our position but uh, absolutely nothing happened until dusk the next day well the same day really but it's two o'clock in the morning till round about ten o'clock at night I suppose and we then saw on the horizon walrus flying boat, an amphibian, and we fired a very pistol in the air to call it over. Fortunately for us, it spotted the flare and came over. In fact, there were two of them, and four of us got into 
one walrus and the other three got into the other. I should point out that the sea was extremely rough with waves about 20 feet high. Anyway, we managed to get into it okay. Four of us did, and three into the other. The one with four in, bearing in mind that there were three other walrus crew, we were far too heavy to take off in that very rough sea condition. So we set off to taxi all the way back across the North Sea. It was about 100 miles. And you have to think about there are mines floating in the North Sea. The other aeroplane, by sheer good luck, managed to bounce off the waves and took off and flew back to Martlesham Heath. So we just taxied across the North Sea until we ran out of fuel about nine hours, 50 minutes later. And there we were wallowing in the sea with no power when suddenly a searchlight was shone on us, which turned out to be the Royal Navy torpedo boat. And with some difficulty, we managed to get from the nose of the walrus aboard the motor torpedo boat. It was quite dangerous because it kept on crashing. Every time it crashed, we jumped. Then we took off towards Felixstowe, and if you don't know, a motor torpedo boat doesn't float, it flies half the time. So it shoots along, jumps completely out of the water and comes down with an almighty crash some 20 yards or so away. They keep doing this, it's very, very uncomfortable. But we finally got to Felixstowe and we went into hospital there, which is a, a requirement. None of us were really damaged and we were declared to be okay. That makes you a member of something called the Goldfish Club. Yes, you're entitled by the manufacturers of dinghies, a firm called Dow. They make the, the glue that stick the, the dinghy together. And uh, from dress suits, you know, tuxedos and whatnot, the Americans would call them, uh, dinner jackets and so forth, but the actual black material, they weave flying goldfish. You can see it's flying over the sea, there's wavy lines, blue wavy lines. And you wear this on your tie in the Air Force, out of sight, so that when your tunic shut up, you can't see it, but when you're casually you've got your jacket open, there's the goldfish for everyone to know that you've been shot down and saved by a dinghy. It's uh, the equivalent to the caterpillar of the Caterpillar Club, who's saved by a parachute, a silken thread, you know, that's the idea. I should point out, though, that the most uncomfortable thing with sitting in a dinghy is that you can't avoid getting water in seawater because it's rough, you know, and it splashes in. So you're spending some time as best you can to bail it out. But whatever you do, if you sit in the dinghy, you're sitting in a pool of water. And it's very, very uncomfortable, I can assure you. So you're spending half the time with your elbows on the rim of the dinghy trying to keep out of the pool of water. But then you run out of steam with your elbows and back in you go again into this cold water. Very uncomfortable. But in order for people flying to see you, you stain the sea with a bright green thing. It's called, I think it's called fluorescein dye. And it stains the whole of the area, this bright green colour. Well, that gets in the dinghy too. And you're sitting in seawater stained with fluorescein dye. And uh, there's a tendency to say, I'll retain my uniform. I don't want to hand it in, I'll keep it. And then claim that I've lost it and get another one, which you do. But the interesting thing is the fluorescein dye, when it dries out, disappears. 
But every time it rains, your bottom turns bright green. <laughs> you were going to tell me about what was happening in the sky above you while you were floating around in the dinghy and waiting for the Royal Navy. Yes. And what happened was, when the three walruses arrived, there were a series of fighter aeroplanes. They were attached to the air rescue squadrons, and they fly hurricanes, spitfires, typhoons, and so forth. And they arranged that throughout our period of rescue, there would be two fighters over us at all times. So as two fighters ran out of petrol, or likely to run out of petrol, two others would be scrambled, and they would take over, then another two, and another two, and so forth. And while we were in the water, we were attacked by two Focke-Wulf 190s. Because of the presence of all these aeroplanes around, the, the Germans put up, and they attempted to shoot us out of the water, which we weren't aware of at the time, because we were going across the North Sea like a submarine, not being able to see anything because of the spray and the rough seas and so forth. As a result, a man called Heselton shot down one of the Focke-Wulf 190s, and depression being the better part of valour, the other one sheared off because he wasn't going to put up with two fighters after him. And that's what happened. So with the subsequent escort of fighters throughout her trip into the night, as it were, you know, throughout the day and into the night, we weren't bothered anymore. It was just these two foot wolves. We got a DFC for it, by the way, Heselton. In fact, so did our uh, walrus pilots, because they were extremely brave to go that near to the Dutch coast. That was thought to be warranted a rescue under enemy fire. You were telling me that you subsequently met the Germans involved in this raid later on, or, or at least one of them who researched it for you. Was that a very strange experience all those years later? It was not a strange experience. I belonged to the Pathfinder Association, and we put up a dinner to entertain the Luftwaffe Association, a similar... We're talking about several years after the war, by the way, when we were all reasonably friendly with each other. A very famous man, what was his name? I'll try and think of it in a minute. Goland, his name was. General of the army or something, Goland. And uh, he was the president of the Luftwaffe Association. And included in the party was a man who was now, so long after the war, was in the records department of the German industry, for want of a better name. And he did a research, and he discovered that, giving him the time, place, height, and so forth, he, he decided that we'd been shot down by Warrant Officer Winkler, Warrant Officer Winkler. And he was the one who caused the two fires plus the the third engine failure, but unfortunately, in a way, because it would have been rather nice to meet the man, he was shot down himself and killed the following night. In other words, on the 22nd or 23rd of June 1943. So absolutely no hard feelings at all about meeting the man who shot you down, had he been alive? I have no compunction whatsoever, because the war was over. I don't think it was personal. From his point of view, it was a man doing his duty for his country as he saw it. The fact that it was Hitler was a bit unfortunate. When you came back and you were invited to join the Pathfinders, where did that move you from? You were in Felixstowe, you, you'd had a fortnight's leave, yes. and then where did you move on to next? Almost immediately, there was a slight delay. We flew no more with 102 Squadron, and we went down to 35 Squadron 
at Gravely, which is in Huntingdonshire, now called Cambridgeshire, and we were on 35 Squadron. By that time, I think our first raids were on Hamburg. There were a series of, it was called Operation Gomorrah, and I think I was involved in about three of the raids on Hamburg, and Hamburg was destroyed totally in that succession of raids. One of them, by the way, we weren't able to attack Hamburg. We dropped bombs on Hamburg, but not under control, because we flew into what is known as a cumulonimbus cloud, and this is a cloud that contains supercooled water. It's well below freezing, but it's still water. But being pure, it doesn't freeze. So when an aeroplane goes into it, it freezes instantly all over your aeroplane. So you get tons of water in no time at all. And all you can do is to fly on a reciprocal track, get out, drop height, and get into warmer air and hope that it melts off. There is de-icing equipment as well, but that was one of the raids. So I think it was the, probably the first or the second raid on Hamburg where duty not carried out because not, nothing to do with us, an act of God, if you like. Can you remember any other famous raids that you went on? Well, I suppose in a way they're all famous. Went to Berlin. I can't remember them all now off record, but we did lots of raids on... The Ruhr, Dortmund, Dusseldorf, Essen, Bochum, Magdeburg, Berlin six times, Stettin, that's a long trip. Stettin is in Poland and took us in those days nine hours to get there and back again. So you're up in the air for nine hours and that's almost beyond the endurance of a pilot to fly that long. I, in fact, was what was known as a, a pilot's mate, so I took over for a short time in order to relieve his arms a bit. That was one exceptional raid. I've flown over, in Pathfinders you have radar, which when it's working is marvellous because you can see the ground. But it was in the infancy days and it wasn't always reliable. So when it failed at wrong moments, like say you bombed a target and for all sorts of reasons it suddenly failed, you, you were blind because you're so reliant upon the thing that when you tried to fly home, as it were, from a raid like that. I remember one occasion we tried to fly between two German cities and instead of flying between them, we went over one of them and got the undivided attention of, uh, which one was it? Stuttgart. Stuttgart, yes. So you, you get the whole town hitting you. Being Pathfinders, by the way, we were always at the beginning of the raid because we're leading the main force which follows behind us. I've been reading something this afternoon. If you actually saw an enemy fighter... You probably didn't live to tell the tale. Now, you did, didn't you? Well, we've lived several times. The Messerschmitt 110 that uh, shot us down. We were foolish in those days, in our early young days. In order to get the navigation right, you fly dead straight and level, which is the last thing you should do if you're a bomber crew. You weave. You never fly straight and level. It's an organised weave. It's not just a casual weave. You fly controlled tracks, 30 degrees to port, straighten up, 30 degrees, double the time to starboard, drop height, lower height, and so forth. So you're going along in what's known as a corkscrew. But we weren't doing that. And furthermore, Bonner Command rather foolishly sent us out in an absolutely bright full moon on the longest day of the year. And there was us flying foolishly, dead straight and level, 
and all the Messerschmitt 110 had to do was to come below us and creep upwards. There's a blind spot for the rear gunner. Uh, creep upwards and far under our belly. That's how they do it. That was one occasion. We didn't see it. On another occasion, we've had... I forgot what airplane it was. I, th I think another one, I know they were quite popular with the Germans. We shot that down. So one shot us down, we shot one of theirs down. Another one, we were flying along, and suddenly the mid-upper gunner said, uh, George, look up there. And flying absolutely above us was a, a Junkers 88. What do I do with it? He said, shoot it down. He said, if I do, it'll fall on us. Don't shoot it down. So he, the pilot eased away from it very gently. It's not cowardice. It's a case of you're not there to necessarily shoot down enemy fighters. You're there to bomb targets. And if you show yourself, you may well attract the attention of other German fighters. So it's a case of what should you do? Should you take it out of him or should you risk being shot down yourself. The first one that fired into the underbelly of your plane, was that when you came down over the coast of Holland? Yes, it was. As I say, we thought it was uh, gunfire. It certainly wasn't. It, it was a Messerschmitt 110, and he got us in absolute classic manner, and we were foolish to allow him to do it. That's what the amounts to. And this is how, in order to achieve the 51 raids we did, you do the right things by this weave. In addition to foxing the fighters, it allows the gunners to be able to see underneath you because you're never quite dead straight and level. And if you look to the left or right of the turret, you can see them. If you allow them to fly underneath you and you don't weave about, you can't see them. You just can't see them because you can't see underneath the airplane. It's a bit like wondering what's underneath a car when you're going. You just can't see underneath a car, can you? When you moved on to Lancaster's, when was that? We changed after 25 operations on Halifaxes, which was our proper aeroplane, because we were leading a Halifax group. But Don Bennett simplified the maintenance by getting rid of the Halifax. There's nothing wrong with the Halifax, by the way, but it's a case of you don't want too many different types to maintain. It's difficult for your ground crews to wonder what aeroplane you're going to work on. Uh, so we probably did 30-odd on Halifaxes and the remainder on, on Lancaster's. And you said you were leading a Halifax group. Does that mean you were the main Pathfinder plane for that group? In a group, I suppose. No, not necessarily. Although you're nominally leading, say, four group and six group, which are Halifax groups, if you're picked to be the Pathfinder, they may, there will be other people there as well. So, yes, it's a nominal thing that your group picks a Pathfinder squadron. I think that altogether there were about eight Pathfinder squadrons, all leading their own group. But you didn't necessarily just lead four-group aeroplanes. You, you could, in Halifax, just lead an all-length raid. I've done that. Now, that's a problem, because the Lancaster outperforms the Halifax, so you could get left behind. Although you start off, you could be overtaken by the Lancasters. What did you do if you were overtaken? You couldn't do anything about it. You just had to put up with it. How did you mark the target if they were oh, already there ahead of you? Various ways you could mark the target. German targets had code names. One is by target indicators, they're called, and these are, in fact, bombs containing phosphorus. There's red phosphorus, green phosphorus, white phosphorus. It's impossible to put them out with water, and they're sprayed down from a height. 
They drop like bombs, but they actually explode above the ground and shoot out. So they mark quite a big area in red. These are dropped by, as in my own case, a blind marker. There was a blind marker which meant I dropped the bomb on radar. And there could be, say, 12 aeroplanes at different times, or more, maybe 20, dropping blind on radar. And then these might be supported by, to keep the thing going during the raid, they might use a backer-up. And they had green phosphorus markers. And their idea was to, what we call, centralise all the reds. Pick the middle of all the reds. And that was considered more accurate because all the errors made by individuals were cancelled out by bombing in the middle of it all. That was one way to do it. If you bombed in the Ruhr, near hand, a more accurate method was oboe. And this was controlled by, by the ground control stations, and uh, they made crossover point. There's one beam going out from one direction, a long way away from it was another, so you had a perfect 90-degree crossover as much as you could. And the aeroplane flew down one beam, and when they got to the target at the crossover, an instruction from the ground said, drop it now, with a signal, you know, beep, or whatever. I'm not sure, because I've never heard it, but they were done mosquitoes, by the way. We had mosquitoes doing ovo raids, but the ones farther away, like Berlin, were done by the H2S marking system. There was a third way, which you'd use for your friends in France, Belgium and so forth. You couldn't really just rain down randomly on it. French targets, Belgium targets, Dutch targets and so forth. The idea then was to use blind marking again, but not to drop target indicators, but to drop flares on parachutes. So you'd light up the whole area with flares, and then a master bomber, this would be a wing commander, a squadron commander, would be chosen to fly at very low levels and drop a target indicator right on the factory or the marshalling yard you weren't killing French people unnecessarily. If it was a marshalling yard, like Trap in Paris, I've been on theirs, that would be done by the master bomber with the flare technique from much more low heights. It could be the mosquito, by the way, again, so that he was fast and could get away very quickly. If the target was obscured by a cloud, there was a target indicator again on flares, and you bombed that marker on a parachute. And there was a succession of these dropped by one aeroplane, another aeroplane, another aeroplane, another... To keep it, it was only burnt for three minutes, so you topped it up every three minutes with another flare. That was used on German targets above cloud. Now, I want you to tell me, please, about dropping a bomb load and then the light canister. As a navigator, before you start off, you do a pre-flight plan, which is based on the MET wind forecast. So when you first start off, you fly on your pre-flight plan because you've got nothing better to go by because you're at ground level and you're climbing and so forth. You do appreciate the wind goes in swirls of highs and lows and, and an aeroplane isn't about. So whatever the wind does, the aeroplane does. So the whole purpose of a navigator is, is to find the wind. And the way this is done is to fly in a direction and then find out where the wind has blown you, and then make a correction. So you go from A to B via a series of course alterations, such that you 
have corrected your errors in time that when you hit the target you know what the wind is because when you drop the bombs they're affected by that wind which varies all the way down by the way it's much stronger at height than it is on the ground now to achieve this in Pathfinders we have two navigators one is called the navigator plotter and the other one is a navigator observer the navigator plotter does as I've just described uh, he does the pre-flight plan and what he needs is a series of ground fixes and this is given to him by the navigator observer in Pathfinders we rely entirely upon the radar system because before we had radar we were quite hopeless in bomber command hitting targets if you couldn't see the ground you couldn't really bomb anything because you didn't know where you were and if you bombed on moonlight nights you got shot down if you bombed when it was cloud you couldn't see the target so with the coming of Pathfinders in late 1942 increasing then till the end of the war but uh, throughout 43, only as far as I'm aware, in 43, 44, only Pathfinders had radar. I think in 45, many more aeroplanes had it, so Pathfinders weren't so important as they were during the early stages of the war. But you've got to remember that it started off with a shambles, which was corrected by the creation of Pathfinders. The radar wasn't perfect to start with, but it got much better very quickly. So... There you are, you've got a plotter and you've got an observer and the observer, as long as the radar is working, gives all the fixes by a screen, a small screen about six inches diameter as far as I can remember and you can see all vertical surfaces, essentially vertical, like you can tell the sea is flat so that's not vertical, so in the land there's lots of vertical surfaces, however minute they might be, so if you turn up the gain as it's called you can see all the coastlines, you can see all the rivers, see all the rivers, as long as they're wide enough. And you can see all the towns. Unfortunately, you can also see all the hills, as well, all the mountains as well. So if you were to fly in a very mountainous area, you've got to be able to, by sheer use of the set, got to be able to recognise towns from Mont Blanc, say. So that's how it's done. There is another device which was extremely accurate. That was called G-G-E-E. -E. But unfortunately, the Germans could jam that over their own enemy coast. I don't know how they did it, but uh, it was absolutely perfect over this country being England or whatever, Scotland, Wales. But as soon as you hit the enemy coast, your G disappeared. So you could start off by using G, which was a measuring system by putting blips in the right order and pulling a button, it would tell you where you were on a chart, a special sort of chart. You could always use astro-navigation, but it was very unpopular because to, to get a couple of star shots, it took too long of flying dead straight and level, which was very unpopular with your crew. And if you could see the ground, well, you could pick up things like railway lines. You needed to have a glint of the lines in the moonlight, as you well know. That if they're glinting, you can see railway lines and you can see rivers as well if, if there's a glint from the moon. But you do need some light because the German's not going to give it to you. You had a, a light tube in the aeroplane where you left the mark or something, didn't you? Yeah, yes, and every, every aeroplane has a, quite a big camera. The pictures from memory would be at least six inches square, if not bigger. Huge, great camera. 
And uh, when you press the bomb tit to drop the bombs, the timing was such that when you were dead over the target, you could drop a photo flash and take a photograph of the ground underneath you, and this would tell your people back at base, your photographic unit, whether you were successful or not, because you brought back a photograph. Now, those photographic units didn't always do what they were supposed to do, did they? The, the photographic flash units, that you were supposed to jettison well, them? There was one case in Halifax where a photo flash left the aeroplane, at least it didn't leave the aeroplane, it moved down the chute, primed the photo flash, but then stuck. And it had a battery, barometric fuse on the photo flash. And when that poor aeroplane came down to the height at which it should explode, it just did that and blew out the side of the aeroplane. So as a result of that, an order was given to the crews to carry a broomstick and to make sure it had left the aeroplane over the target when it should be taking a photo flash. The, uh, the wireless operator was given the, this broomstick and he had to follow through to make sure it left the completely. The broomstick was long enough to push it right out. And uh, my own uh, wireless operator was, had a very vivid imagination. He was petrified of this thing. And he always visualized it blowing up in his face. And on one occasion, having made sure it had gone, totally relieved, he came back to his position and stumbled over a big canister. I ought to point out, by the way, that in, on the way into the target, we've been, I think we've been shot at or in searchlights, and uh, you have to really throw the aeroplane around to get out of searchlights. It's a nasty business because all the gunners in the area that when you're in the searchlights, the ground gunners, they shoot at you. And any fighters that are up in the air, they shoot at you too, if they can. You're highlighted, you're very vulnerable. Anyway, we'd gone through this and we'd attacked the target and the photo flash had gone and so forth and he came back to his wireless operator position and stumbled over what he thought was a bomb. And he very bravely got onto the floor of the aeroplane and, and, and kept this bomb still because he thought if it hit anything it would explode in his face, a bit like the photo flash might do. And uh, he called out and he said, Run! There's a bomb in the aeroplane. Come, come and do something about it. Make it safe. So I went back with a torch and flashed around and thought, did it come through the roof or did it come from our own bomb bays upwards in all this uh, heavy evasive action that we'd been doing? And I, there was no holes anywhere, so I had another look at this thing. And it dawned upon me that it was a cylinder and it was hollow and liquid was coming out of it. And I thought, this is not possible. And then it dawned upon me that what I was looking at was the in, inner container of an Elsan. <laughs> Did you let this poor man live this town? I've told this story many times, male functions, and uh, uh, not, not in his presence, I might add. I feel sorry for him because he's a bit embarrassed. <laughs> if there was one raid that you think perhaps made the biggest difference and that you were glad you went on, which one would it be? The biggest difference we made on? Oh, undoubtedly Hamburg, because it was totally destroyed. I say totally, virtually obliterated. And uh, Peenemunde must have been... I wasn't on Peenemunde. We stood down that night, but my squadron went to Peenemunde, and that's where the rockets were bombed and the scientists were bombed, deliberately, by the way. 
And they did it in two goes and uh, bombed the site, first of all, to destroy the rockets if they could. And then they put a second raid up in the hope that everyone would come out and find out what was going on and, and catch the scientists. But I did not say too much about that. But that was a deliberate act. Yeah, but those rockets were doing tremendous damage to the civilian population in yes. Britain, weren't yes, they? Yes, 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 they were. Yes, it was important. And I think it delayed it quite a bit. But uh, I've, I've forgotten what the impact was. But it, it was an important raid. We never went there again. We did bomb rocket sites, of course. We bombed those, I mentioned G just now, we could bomb those on the coast, on G. We, I think we did that once, because it was so accurate. When the invasion of Europe began in 1945, what were you doing then? I'd finished my two tours, in fact we'd gone over the top really, and my squadron commander, well, in fact not my squadron commander, but a news wing commander, invited us to be his crew but only if all the crew would fly with him. In other words, it was himself. My pilot had finished by now, by the way, and I was flying with this particular wing commander. And he wanted us to do a third tour with him. And he asked me, I was an, an officer by now, a flight lieutenant, and uh, he wanted me to invite the crew to, to all get together and fly with him and do another tour. And uh, I asked the crew if they would do it, and they said, get lost. You know, we, we think we've done enough. And they were right, because uh, he got shot down very, very quickly indeed afterwards. Nice man. But I often wonder whether he'd been shot down if he'd been with us, because uh, the crew can do a lot for a pilot. Depends, you know, everyone does his bit. But uh, a crew that gets an aeroplane off course unnecessarily is asking for trouble. So when you, you'd done your two tours of duty and you'd survived, which was very unusual... What did you do then? I, I went to Emmonsbury uh, in London, because I lived in London at the time. I think the Air Force, for tour-expired aircrew, they did their best to put you near an airfield reasonably near your home, as, as best they could. And in my case, living in London, there was nothing there. And I, in fact, went to Emmonsbury and lived at home, in fact, for the last 18 months of the war. But I finished just before D-Day, and... Uh, I was at Air Ministry from then on, which was very nice, you know, but uh, felt a bit of a fraud living at home again. <laughs> Did you at some time fly with uh, pilots from the Commonwealth and with aircrew from the Commonwealth? Yes, I have. I've flown with all sorts of people, Americans, Australians, Canadians. The Canadians, I ought to say as I'm talking into this microphone, were absolutely marvellous. So, so were the Australians. We all got on extremely well, and the philosophy in those days was not to have separate air forces. They were separate. The Australian Royal Australian Air Force is the Royal Australian Air Force, and the Royal Canadian Air Force is the Royal Canadian Air Force. But the idea of those air forces was to integrate, mix the crews if possible, avoid having all Australian crews, all Canadian crews, and it worked up to a point. But the only people allowed to have their own air force were the Canadians because they were the biggest contingent other than the Brits. I was just what, what was called a screen navigator and I used to take people out to test them on the radar to give them a bit of confidence and to make sure they were okay. That was an extra duty I did when we weren't flying. Now, if you were flying British planes and you're talking about American crew, were they American volunteers or was this after 1941? 
No, the, the American crews I'm talking about were in the Royal Air Force. It was interesting that quite a lot of Americans joined the Royal Canadian Air Force to get into the air before the war, before, you know, they joined, they crossed the border and joined the Royal Canadian Air Force because they were so keen to fly. When the Americans came into the war, they paid a lot more money. So these Royal Canadian Air Force Americans were rather keen to get into the American Air Force. But they said, can we stay with the Royal Air Force? Seriously, they liked being apart from, it made them different. The, the Eagle Squadron was one such squadron that uh, f they flew fighters. And uh, they had their own, they're all Americans, but they were all really in the, Air, in the Royal Air Force. You were telling me last night, if you'd tell me a little bit more again, about the navigator who worked behind the screens and, and never looked until the last oh, race. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, th this is the plotter. This is Reggie Ward, poor soul, who's just died. Uh, he was the plotter. And it wasn't necessary for him to look out at all because the, the navigator observer provided all the external information. And he never looked out. He was superstitious and never looked out. And what, what I mean by this is that within the canopy of the aeroplane, you know, the, the perspex and so forth, you build a sort of black tent of material, quite thin material. And I think he felt safe inside this black tent in spite of the aeroplane being made of very, very thin aluminium, but he felt quite safe, and he never actually looked out. And then he said one day, I'm going to look out tonight, see what it's like. But he didn't, and it went on for a long while, and he kept on saying, tonight's the night, I'm going to look out. Anyway, after several goes, he, he finally said, tonight's the night, and he pulled up the zip, because there were zips to keep looking at the tent, looked out and said, Christ, and shut it down again quickly. So I, I think he felt he was safe if, if he couldn't see it. <laughs> Do you have a favourite among the aeroplanes that you flew? Oh, I think it's the Lancaster, undoubtedly. I think it must be um, the aeroplane of the war. I'm talking about the Super Fortress as well. It's a, of interest, by the way, and I hope that no Americans are going to ever listen to this, but the <laughs> Fortress carried slightly less bombs than the mosquitoes that went to Berlin every night. Did you know that? The, the little twin-engine mosquito could carry approaching 4,000 pounds worth of bombs. It carried a cookie, it was called. And the superfortress, bearing in mind that it had an enormous number of gun turrets, I think, I've got how many, an awful lot, they carried so much protective armament that they had to reduced their bomb load, and it, it was actually slightly less than the mosquito. By the way, the mosquitoes were not pathfinders, but they were within pathfinder group control to command. Don Bennett ran them all. There was a mosquito squadron on each pathfinder squadron, and they were known as the light night striking force. The idea was to go to Berlin every night of the war and keep them awake and drop a, a cookie on them. I hope you've enjoyed listening to that interview and will join us again next time for another Flypast podcast.
This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.